church over the last, even the last couple months, which has been a little crazy. There's been so much that has happened. We went on this whole, like, we're moving and we got kicked out. We're going to stay. Wait, we're moving again, Journey. And we're actually not moving. Um, and so I, I know you guys have heard this announcement before, some of you. But we're staying here, hopefully, for the next three years. And yet I've seen God move us um, in other ways. You know, I, I feel like over the last couple months in this journey that God's moved us to see Fullerton in deeper ways and more missional ways, that he's moved us closer as a community. And he's allowed our leadership team to really learn to submit and um, listen to one another and and make decisions, listen to the Lord and make decisions kind of as he's led us and trusted us. So I think in some ways we kind of started where we were. And in other ways, I feel like God has brought us forward. And two weeks ago, I talked about us looking at a 17,000 deficit for our church. But a lot of you have given really generously over the last couple weeks. And so we'll give you a full financial report uh, next month as a congregation. But we're pretty much uh, break even this year, which is amazing. So I just want to thank you guys for giving generously. And next year that you would really pray about how to give uh, uh, in a regular and committed way to our church. Being a part of my family, once me and my, my sister started working, we were always really open with the family budget. I, I know some families have it kind of hidden and they never talk to their kids about money, but my family was maybe overshared. Um, but anyways, and when it was appropriate, when we started working, we just kind of laid the finances in front of the family and we divided it up. We divided up the cell phone bill, the insurance, the rent, the food, um, and because we wanted to stay together and we wanted to um, continue going forward. And so I hope that as a church, we could do that. That's kind of how I hope that we've modeled church for you, that our finances are kind of open uh, in front of you and that all of us would kind of pick up a piece of it um, and so that we can stay together and, and more so so that we can perpetuate ministry into the city. You know, I think about what we do locally, uh, whether it's our creatives ministry, our special needs ministry, renting. Uh, we hope to rent the facility downstairs next year so Arden can stop collecting dollar bills. Um, and, and we've been able to really bless the people around us here. And we've also given over 15,000 uh, to missions last year, locally with crew staff at, at the apartments, but also overseas as well. And we're, we're a small church, but we hope that uh, we can break some of those statistics that Katie was talking about, that we can do better, um, that we could give more than 3%, you know, maybe 30%, that we would send uh, more than 50% of our people to the 1040 window as missionaries. And so those are our dreams. And, um, and a lot of that is you uh, being here, serving, um, loving this church, being family, and some of that is the finances as well. So yeah, really grateful for this year. God's kind of answered two of my greatest prayer requests, um, our greatest prayer requests. And so excited about what God has for us next year and how we can dream for that year without, these, without the facility and finances kind of ho- hanging over our heads. Um, minis- for me, ministry, it's like, 
either I'm not thinking at all about money and, and building and we're just able to focus. But when one of those things come up, that takes all of my attention. You know, it's like, it's hard to do ministry if we're meeting at Acacia Park, which I talked about, or if we're like cutting everyone's salary. So I'm really thankful that that's kind of taken off of the table and we can continue moving forward. All right. Here's our question of the week. Um, huh? You didn't like that transition? <laughs> Too abrupt? So we're going into our question of the week. Um, if you guys could break off into groups of two, twos and threes, um, who did you become better friends with this year? Who do you, did you dislike m- most this year? If they're, if they're in the room, please don't point to them. Uh, if, you're, if you're alluding to them and, and the person you're talking to can figure that out, choose someone else, okay? So we don't want this to become gossip time, but I do want you to share about who you dislike. And then also, um, if you could change something internal about yourself next year, what would it be? All right, so I'm going to give you guys uh, five minutes to go ahead and talk. I would love for you to meet someone around you who's new. And um, please, yeah, please just group up. And we'll come back in five minutes. So here's a passage we're looking at um, specifically. And whoever, okay, so I just read it out. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Um, So imagine the person you dislike slapping you with words or with their palm. (laughs) Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at this passage, right? And at the end of the day, I just hate this Bible verse. I don't know if you've ever read a Bible verse that you're like, this is so against my core values. I don't know what to do. So like, I just can't imagine letting someone slap me in the face and not like just knocking them out, you know? And that was a lot of my childhood. I remember in elementary school, I got bullied a lot. You know, I shared a lot of those stories with you. Um, but people, kids would pretty much spend recess like bullying me as a hobby. And then we would all go to like fourth period class. And then um, in high school and college, I started putting on a lot of, uh, a lot of games. So I got pretty buff, and I got better and better at fighting. I, I met a friend. He's like 6'6". He has two black belts, and we would just spar all the time. And when you spar with someone 6'6", six, six, they have like a three-foot reach on you because when they punch straight, it goes straight into your face. And when you punch them, you're like losing all this length just hitting upward. So I got really good at dodging. And then anyone else I sparred that was like my height, I would just like dominate them because I'm like, oh, I can reach you right from here, you know? And um, so I, I became like a pretty proficient uh, fighter. I'm, I, you know, if someone's training their whole life, they would totally own me. But like on the street, I'd be okay, you know? Um, and so there are people that I got to defend um, and because I was able to to gain confidence in that way, I remember there was this girl in high school who was harassed uh, by this guy, and she talked to me about it. 
And so I went up to talk to the guy and asked him to stop, and he did, you know, stuff like that. Or this other guy, uh, I was Christian club president, so everyone, this is like, I saw it as part of the job. So this other guy, he, he went to my Christian club, but he was like super dorky, he walks funny, and he can't speak right. But he's like a brother, right? Because we're, we're in the same family. And I, I just kind of looked out for him. And there was this bully in class. And he would like crumple up paper and like throw it at him. Just like in front of everyone, you know? And no one said anything. So I got really mad. And I, I told him, hey, you guys, you need to stop. And then he threw another one. And I like batted it down. I was like, do you want to take this outside? Again, Christian club president duties, you know? <laughs> Protecting people. And so when I look at this passage, I just, I'm dumbfounded. Like, I don't know what to make of it. Oh, I forgot to go into my third illustration. So I fought Philip Chu as well. <laughs> it says, I want a ring match. This was uh, with me and Pat- Patrick's house. He did some sparring there. And then here's some of that. It says, uh, I wrote, have Chris G teach you how to spar first. And Philip Chu said, once I win, I'll take over Renew Church. <laughs> And Christine said, LOL, this looks like your pastor punched you in the face. And Justin said, probably for good reason. And Chris G said, that's exactly what happened. And I wrote at the bottom, for the record, I also sparred Chris G and Andrew Starfield. Um, Anyways, okay, so back to the passage. So how does it make sense um, to do this? I mean, do you just kind of stand there and just like, get slapped over and over again. How, what does this mean? So I'm going to go ahead, talk through this passage, and then uh, give you guys some... This keeps cracking. Um, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this is actually taken out of three separate passages in the Old Testament. And believe it or not, even though it sounds brutal, right? It's actually a very... It's actually speaking about Old Testament justice in a positive way. It's saying that the punishment should equal the crime. And that's good. That's a good thing. And, and it's also saying that you shouldn't um, punish someone more than what they've done, right? It's not an eye for two eye or tooth. If you break a tooth, I'll break both your legs. And, and that's where we tend to go. If you think about your worst moments, someone cuts you off on the freeway, you're not thinking, oh, I'm just going to cut them off back. It's like, I'm going to kill their family. You know, like we just go really dark, really fast. And so what the Bible is saying, uh, what the Old Testament law was saying is like, you should, they should only be repaid to the extent of damage, and that's it. There's a cap on it. You don't get to kill their family for, you know, them blinding you. Okay. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And that, that was interesting as well, because it sounds, again, like this hyper-passivism. Like if someone's going to do something evil to a person you love or to yourself, you're just supposed to stand back, hands up, not do anything. But the word resist here uh, is, is a Greek word that's only used this one time in the whole Bible. And it's talking about vengeance. It's saying that if someone's done something evil to you, you're not to, in turn, or at a later time, take revenge on them, which I think is different than defending yourself in the moment. Does that make sense? So I don't think that this is speaking about momentary self-defense or defending someone else in the moment of attack. It's speaking about taking justice into your own hands and enacting vengeance later. Okay? Everyone's clear on that, right? It's still an edgy passage, though. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
Turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you take, uh, for your shirt, hand over your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, um, go with them two miles. And this verse, let's see, 41, in that context, again, the Jews are occupied by the Roman Empire. And a soldier had the right, the legal right, to ask someone to carry their equipment for a mile. So as a Roman soldier, I could walk around and be like, I don't know you, but here, here's all my baggage. Walk a mile with me. And Jesus is saying that you do more than what's required of you. That if you're required to walk one, one mile, do a second mile. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. I think about this passage, 43, every time I see a person asking for money, right? Um, does this mean that every time there's a homeless person asking for money on the side of the street, we're supposed to just give them money? Um, does this mean that every time someone slaps you, you're supposed to let them slap you again? Well, here's... I think one of the fundamental concepts we need to understand in order to be able to not misinterpret this passage, that Jesus, in all of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been going through, is not talking about a new law. He's not enacting new external um, rules and regulations. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, hey, if you just do this one thing, you're okay. You can... Lust after another woman, but you can't commit adultery. But what you can do is divorce your wife first and then sleep with her, right? So that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus kept cutting into their heart and saying, you're not, you, you're keeping the technicalities of the law, but your heart is actually going the opposite direction of what this law was intended for. It was intended for you to be faithful to your wife. It was intended for you to be a person of your word and live authentically. And so Jesus isn't laying down a law that's saying in every circumstance, give to the person who's asking from you. In every circumstance, turn the other cheek. Instead, he was trying, he was speaking about a new heart. He was speaking about a heart change. And so legalism produces, or the law produces this mindless, automatic, binary obedience. When we have a law in place, you just kind of follow it if you're a rule follower. And either you follow it or you don't. That's why I say it's binary. And you're not thoughtful about it. Oftentimes we obey laws just because it's there. There's no real, um, an intrinsic motivation to obey it. But when you have heart change, this produces a thoughtful, con complex, and rightly motivated action. Um, and so if I were to turn the other cheek, what Jesus is saying is that it's not an automatic decision. It's not passivism. It's not, um, I don't just turn my brain off. But that I, in love, and in consideration for this person, decide moment by moment to absorb an insult, to do beyond what is required of me. It's, it's this um, active, thoughtful, loving decision. And so there are many exceptions to this rule, right? Because it's not a rule. There's many times where you don't turn to other cheek. There's many times where you walk away or you defend yourself or you, you end an abusive relationship. All of those things 
are true because, again, not a law, but a heart posture. Okay? So when you read that first verse and you're like, but what about this scenario? What about this scenario? What about this scenario? None of that uh, makes sense from a legalistic perspective, but all of that makes sense from a heart perspective. Here's the heart that Jesus wants us to have. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the heart change that Jesus wants us to have, that we would love our enemies, that we would pray for them. And we do that as we look at the example of the Father. And I would say we do that as we look at Jesus' sacrifice for us. When we fully grasp his sacrifice, when we turn the other cheek, when we do beyond what is asked, it's not fundamentally about that action point. It's not fundamentally about that specific scenario and us rising above it. It's fundamentally about being like Jesus because of his love for us. Because he sets the example of this conscious choice to die for us while we were his enemies, while we were sinners. So we go back to the crucifixion, uh, Calvary, the Sanhedrin court, and we think about when Jesus stood in front of mere men and allowed them to arrest him at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter pulls out a sword, he cuts an ear off, he's ready to go to war, and Jesus says, Um, Peter, if I wanted to, I could send a legion of angels to destroy all these people. And then we go step by step and we think about Jesus' suffering and we just keep that in mind. Keep in mind that in every point of his suffering, he could have ended it and killed everyone, right? He was completely empowered. So he stands before the Sanhedrin court and they, they punch him they accuse him of blaspheming. They, they send all these wild accusations at him and he chooses in every moment to be silent. Think about the type of courage and resilience that takes because he wasn't a victim. He had full control. When the soldiers beat him and put a crown of thorns on his head, when they tied him to a post and lashed him, He was making active, thoughtful, loving decisions to stay tied, right? That the ropes didn't hold him. He held his own hands down. The soldiers didn't have him captive. He chose to hold his position and take every lash because he loved his enemies, He loved us. He absorbs our pain. When he hangs on the cross, it wasn't the nails that kept him there. 
He thought of us. He thought of us being in his family. And that's what this whole passage is talking about. It's not passivism. It's not a legalistic standard. It's this decision like Jesus makes to absorb an insult. It's this decision that Jesus makes to take the pain for the other and to give back love. That is one of the most incredible things you can do and what would make you most like Christ, right? Jesus, what the passage is saying is that if you're a children of God and you emulate him, emulate him in this. Love your enemies. When people do evil to you, be like Christ, even when you have the power, especially when you have the power, to use it to return evil, uh, good for evil. It's an incredible thing. We're only able to do that when we understand and receive how Jesus does this for us, for our salvation, and every moment after when we ask him for forgiveness, he say, and he extends grace. When we're living in the gospel, part of that is it changing who we are and how we posture the gospel to those around us. How we reflect him. We receive it so deeply that it changes us and we are able to do that for the people around us. And so we start praying and loving our enemies. Um, and we love them in, in this perfect way. When, when the passage ends with be perfect therefore as your father in heaven is perfect it's not it's speaking about this specific category so it's not speaking about perfection in terms of never sinning again it's saying be perfect in love like your father loves perfectly how he loves everyone unconditionally you be perfect in your love as well have agape love like your father and I think one of the most powerful ways we can try to step into this, which is incredibly difficult, I don't think there's a more difficult task than to take someone's insult or evil and give them good. I don't think there's anything harder in life than that. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that Jesus asks us to walk in is to pray and to love our enemies um, until we change the way we see them. I think that's what prayer does first and foremost. Oftentimes when we're praying for someone, we're, we want them to change. But one of the most powerful things that prayer does is actually allowing us to see someone else in a different way. So if we pray enough for someone, they actually stop becoming our, they actually stop being our enemies. They become someone that God cares about. They become our brother and sister again. They become a whole person instead of being defined by a hero-villain mentality, right? Have you noticed the way you talk about people can just be victim and villain or hero and villain, that they're this one-dimensional person who only does evil? When you pray for someone, they become fuller than that, and you start caring about who they are. 
You know, I, I, um, there's this guy, a simple kind of stupid example, but there's this guy that I played volleyball with, um, and he was just an angry, angry person. And when I messed up, which happened a lot in my early days, now I'm like much better than him. But before when I was a noob, I messed up, I couldn't set him right, I couldn't bump uh, him right. And he would just get mad and really talk down on me and, and, and be angry at me and want me to stop playing with them, right? Just totally disrespected. And I went through this whole process where I was just mad at him. I wanted to cut him out of the group, you know, and like I wanted to get, get him back. And uh, sometimes I would give him mouth as well. And then, of course, at some point, God was like, hey, why don't you start praying for him? And as I prayed for him, um, I saw him, I saw him differently. It wasn't just about how he hurt me. It was about who he was. And I noticed that he doesn't just talk that way to me. He talks that way to himself. And I started noticing throughout the game how many times he was angry with himself, how many times he spoke down and devalued himself. And there was this compassion that was growing where it's like, man, I want him to think of himself better. I want to speak life to him, even when he's speaking death to himself. And I started thinking about this group, this friendship group that he had, um, who he doesn't have, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't have a lot of people he enjoys or or, or games that he plays, you know, hobbies that he has. And he just, there was this sense that he had a, a group here. And I wanted him to continue to have that group instead of wanting him to be kicked out. You know, he just became more whole. And when we really pray for someone and love them, they stop being this one-dimensional enemy. It stops being about what they do to you but they can become bigger and more holistic and you can start seeing their pain and their story. And more importantly, you see them through the eyes of God. And when you give them value like that, you, will, you can love them. You can speak well of them. You can return their evil for good. Um, you can posture your heart to love them back and to say, hey, in, in the appropriate moments, right? Not in, not in times where I'm, in appropriate moments, I can absorb an insult in, or injury. As appropriate, I can give more than what was requested of me. As appropriate, I can do more than was required. And I put as appropriate because, again, they're thoughtful, active, loving decisions that we make in every moment, as opposed to this passive, turn off my brain, keep slapping me sort of thing. But the most powerful aspect of this is that this is how Jesus turns us, that he turns all of us because we saw him love us when we were his enemies and we didn't deserve it. And there's this passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 31, that I find If I were to get a tattoo, this would be like my seventh one, right? I have a lot of ideas on tattoos. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when you think about what it means to really change the world and change the people around you, when you think about how Jesus changed the world, it wasn't overpowering others. It wasn't defeating evil or defeating people. It It was turning them. 
I, I took a few classes on uh, karate film because I thought that would be interesting. And one of the comments that my professor made was that in the er, in in late like action films, it's this hero villain mentality where the hero somehow overcomes and defeats the villain, and they're dead or disabled or maimed. But in the oldest of Chinese films, the most noble of heroes would defeat their villain and then ask them to become for the sake of apprenticing them. So the end of movie wouldn't be this villain being killed, but this villain turning, overpowered to turn for good. And I imagine people in your life Maybe it's your family members. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's um, someone in your class where you dislike them and for good reason. But the gospel is saying you can extend love and goodness in a way where you conquer their evil because they themselves find Jesus and the gospel. They themselves turn and become they, they get a heart change. What a powerful concept. And when I think about the most incredible missionary acts, the most incredible Christian acts, is this replication of the gospel, this active, thoughtful decision to love in the face of evil that allows someone to find the love of Jesus. I would love for us just to um, spend a little bit of time to pray with each other, for the person that, number two, right, the person you dislike, how can you just start praying for them and asking God to change the way you see them to be more holistic, the way that you speak to, of, about them, and, and to do it in light of the gospel. And so as we pray for this person, uh, when we're done, I would love for you to, to go with them to the communion table and to remember Jesus' great sacrifice for us, the way that he shed his blood, the way that he allowed his body to be broken, the way that he absorbed our sin and our shame and the wrath of God to extend grace and love for us. He did it first, and he did it in the most significant way. And as we receive that, um, as we as we wrap our minds and our hearts around it, it will transform us. His death, his sacrificial love will transform us when we receive it. And it will transform the way that we love and extend love to the people around us. Father, we're grateful for this time. And um, yeah, as we think about the people around us that are hard to love, um, that we might even deem as our enemies or people we hate, I ask, Lord, that um, you would take the fixation of what they've done to us away, that we would see bigger, that we would start our gaze, not from the insult or from the pain, but we would look at the cross first. You took um, our accusations, you took our lashes, you took separation from the Lord, our sin, and you in every moment decided to take evil and give good to us. And as we see that and receive that, 
I pray that you would help us to see and pray for those other people differently and to respond to them differently, to be perfect in love like you are perfect, to be your children, to be lights of this world because everyone else uh, loves their friends. Everyone else does good for those who do good to them. But let us be like you, Jesus, who can do good to those who do evil to us. Let us be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go ahead and pray for the person that you uh, did those questions with? And then please take communion together.